the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter Five, Trailblazing. The tunnel was kept dark, lest sunlight leak out of the pump house's trap door and be seen. Susan stood in line behind Justine. The faint glow from Byron's red flashlight silhouetted those in line ahead of her. All eyes focused on the small red light atop the ladder. Standing in line, Susan began to feel uncomfortably warm. She was grateful for the extra winter clothes Emily gave her. They would be great for searching in the woods for hours, or all day, for that missing road. At the moment, however, the snow pants, wool socks, heavy sweater, eh, they were too much, even in the cool of the tunnel. Suddenly, the little light turned green. Time to go, everyone, said Byron. Drones are gone. The line of people moved quickly. Susan ascended the ladder by feel. The pump house was dim in the pre-dawn light, but it felt vibrant after the blackness of the tunnels. Outpost gives us the all clear, said Byron. Move quickly to your positions. After supper the night before, Byron had explained how they would use the gap between the last drone flight and the passing of the Fed patrols as a window of opportunity to get their equipment and supplies staged near the bridge. Winter days were short, so every minute of daylight was precious. Justine, Kayla, and others would carry the steam engine and boiler. Susan was assigned to the beam crew. Xavier, Hal, Charon, and Malcolm would provide security. Okay, go, announced Byron. Everyone flooded out of the little shed, scattering in their various directions. Susan followed the man who favored Moose. He was the only face she recognized on the team that she had been assigned to. Beneath a camo net, draped with tree branches, rested an eight-inch square box truss, roughly fifteen feet long. The aluminum-colored paint made it look lightweight, but it took all six of them to lift it. Walking with the beam was awkward. Xavier pointed to a spot behind a rock wall. The beam crew sidestepped into position and lowered the beam. They rolled it against the rock wall to screen the view of the beam from the river road. The covering of dead leaves finished the disguise. We got that from a water tower, Moose Man said. It was on the roof of an industrial building. Uh, afraid we bent two of them. But we got this one and another. And to positions, everyone, Xavier said. Could be any time now. Everyone hustled to a familiar spot. Justine motioned for Susan to join her behind an old tree. I have hollowed out a nice spot, Justine said. Room for two. We cover with this. She held up a tarp printed in autumn camouflage. There were several small branches laced into the tarp. The two women settled into the earthen depression and covered themselves with the tarp. Justine lay such that she could peek around one side of the tree. Susan positioned herself and her strategic wrinkle in the tarp on the other side. It was close to eight o'clock. The rustling and whispering of the crews had been silent for many long minutes. Without the chatter of the birds, the landscape felt like it had been put on mute. Slowly, a faint hum of truck tires on pavement displaced the silence. It became quite loud. A sand-colored Humvee roared into view. The rumble of its engine 
could be heard over the tire noise as it passed by. For a brief moment, she felt a rush of panic. Soldiers were so close to her. What if they saw her? They're going too fast to be looking for anything out here, Susan thought. The tire hum faded. We must wait, whispered Justine. Sometimes the others come back quickly. Sometimes they do not. Susan's right leg and arm cramped up during the wait. She tried to move them as little as possible to avoid crinkling the tarp. They needed to listen for tire noise. Eventually, a higher-pitched whine rose out of the silence. A two-tone blue SUV with a state seal on the door rushed by. Its tire noise faded into the distance. Eventually, Xavier emerged from hiding and stood in the road. Showtime, everyone! Get moving! You have a lot to do today! Justine ran to her steam engine crew and began directing their efforts. Susan ran across the road to rejoin the beam crew. The beam felt heavier than before. The crew wobbled and stumbled under their load, looking like some drunken Chinese parade dragon. They managed to get the beam onto the bridge. Susan was more than happy for the rest. Near where they laid the beam stood Justine's steam crew. One man fed sticks into a bed of bright red coals in a fire pit made of a tire rim. Atop the rim sat what looked like a narrow propane tank, perched on four stubby steel legs. Wisps of steam curled up from a valve on top of the tank. Pipes and tubes fed from the tank to a naked lawnmower engine mounted to a heavy wooden frame. On the side of the engine was a large steel wheel. A smaller pulley was attached to the center. A rubber belt led from the pulley to a black and yellow generator. Twenty pounds, said a man, monitoring the gauge on the top of the tank. Justine poured thick oil into a metal funnel attached to the engine. She turned the flywheel slowly until a little roller sat atop a crudely welded second lobe on a cam. When she had the roller where she wanted it, she opened a valve and the piping and gave the flywheel a spin. Susan stared, fascinated. She never looked at engines in her past life. They were magical devices beneath sheet metal, easy to take for granted. Even lawnmower engines were always clothed in bright-colored metal shrouds and covers. Justine's makeshift steam engine had a naked, almost skeletal look. The engine sputtered. Chuff, cha chuff. The flywheel spun a few more revolutions. Water blew out of a vertical pipe as the engine stopped. Justine adjusted the valve and spun the flywheel again. Chuffa, chuffa, chuff, 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 chuff. Justine beamed. The steam crew celebrated with high fives and fist bumps. Justine opened the valve more. The chuff, chuff sounds blended into a sort of hissing buzz. The gauge-watching man slipped a large, can-like cover over the steam exhaust, reducing the noise to a muffled hiss. Water dripped from the bottom of the can, but very little steam escaped. Justine nodded to a woman beside the generator. She pulled a lever, lowering an idler pulley against the wide belt. The steam engine labored for a moment, but recovered. Its buzz was an octave lower. The generator clattered to life. The woman set a wooden box over the generator to quiet the clatter. Men that had climbed into the framework overhead gave a few zings of their cutters and grinders to test the voltage. 
they flashed gloved thumbs up. Okay, lift it up like the last time, Justine ordered. Susan didn't know what last time looked like, but she took her place beside the beam, ready to lift. Someone had hooked the beam to a block and tackle. A crew of three pulled on the rope. The beam rose. We can stand it on end, said the moose man. On that little point sticking out down there? We hold it in place while they cut notches in it to fit. Susan helped guide the beam to vertical. There wasn't enough room for all of them around the vertical beam. Susan was happy to get out of their way. We'd better get going, Princess, Charon said. Time's a-wasting. She was relieved to be done with the heavy lifting, but not especially eager to resume looking for her missing road with Charon and Hal. The three donned their padded cloth booties and set into the woods again. When they emerged onto the dirt logging road, Susan closed her eyes and tried to visualize what she saw as a child. She could remember having to pump her bike pedals hard to get up speed to run up to the ridge. She walked toward the ridge, only opening her eyes occasionally. Back then, biking up the ridge took everything she had. The sand in the bottoms of the ruts ate speed. Why is this time going to be any different from yesterday? Hal said. I say we should just plan on using the highway south of here. We can take that bridge. You'll lose a lot of good people that way, countered Charon. Susan stood at the crest of the ridge. The logging road led down to the slope. It looked familiar, yet not entirely. She closed her eyes to remember. Better to force the issue than run around these woods for nothing, whined Hal. Susan sighed heavily. All the talking wasn't helping her remember clearly. Because this is total... Will you be quiet? Susan snapped. You're not helping anything. She closed her eyes to avoid seeing Hal's angry face and to continue her visual memories. Rather than angry, Hal looked taken aback. Susan remembered how she and Melissa used to rest for a few minutes on the ridge before continuing. They needed to rest because the road went uphill again. It didn't go down, Susan said to herself. What? My road, the road. It didn't go down toward the swamp. It went up. She walked along the edge of the road, looking for the fork. There had to be a fork. She found only a thick wall of scrub stems and young trees. There ain't no road going up anywhere, said Hal. Susan ignored him. Guided by her memories, she studied the scrubby forest edge as if she had X-ray vision. She stood at what seemed like the right distance from the ridge. The road should be right here. She paced back and forth, studying the ruts. The sides were deep. She dreaded riding her bike near the steep-sided ruts. They could knock a tire out from under you in a heartbeat. One section of the road didn't have steep-sided ruts. Instead, it was flat and grassy. She pushed into the brush, fending off more twigs from her face. The ground was thick with brush stems and small tree trunks. Beyond the scrub lay a big fallen tree. From the moss and the mushrooms, she guessed it had fallen a long time ago. On the other side of the fallen tree, she could see a pattern beneath the leaf litter. Two barely discernible parallel channels led away and up the hill. She closed her eyes, 
remembered biking up the hill, then opened her eyes slowly. This is it, she exclaimed. The road is here. What? Charon and Hal asked. They pushed their way through the scrub to join her. See those shallow lines in the leaves? Susan pointed and traced a line up the hill. That's the road. I remember it. Hmm, mused Charon. He studied the branches overhead. Hole in the canopy. Bet when this big tree fell down, it opened a hole in the canopy. Let in light, all this scrub sprung up. Between the scrub and the fallen tree, it's little wonder the ATV kids didn't keep going this way. Hmm, was all Hal said. Hal, call down for a couple of men to bring up some saws, Charon said. Get this scrub cut away, and that log rolled off to one side. Me and Princess are going to go up ahead and scout out for the rest of the road. We are? Susan asked. Do you want to take the radio? Hal asked. Nope, I'll be fine. You'll need it to coordinate the work. Charon strode past Susan. We have to make certain this road connects to the highway beyond. Now, come on. Susan hurried to catch up. She had to suppress a vindictive, I told you so. It was a bit early for that. She did find the hidden road. Her memories assured her that it would eventually connect up with the valley highway. Perhaps when they reached the dairy farm, on the highway, she might make him admit that she was right. A wry smile grew on her face, pre-relishing the moment. The silence of the long walk began to wear on her. Martin always coaxed her into talking. She figured it was her turn to strike up conversation. What were you doing before you got involved in Operation Longbow? Security. She waited for more. It didn't come. Where were you doing security? Ohio border. Again she waited. Why are you always so cranky? She snipped. A wave of dread flashed across her shoulders. She didn't intend to say that out loud. Charon stopped, looked her in the eye. His eyes were narrow slits. He resumed walking without saying anything. Not wanting to leave her outburst as the last thing said, she continued, Malcolm said you felt Longbow was a waste of time. How come? I mean, you said the trucks were coming tomorrow. Justine's working on the bridge, and we just found the road. It looks like Longbow is working out, but you're still all, well, not happy. Leadership wanted the resistance in your state to stay alive. I don't think it matters. It's certainly not worth all the manpower and risk everyone is taking, just so you people can have a few more weeks of food and keep being a pain in the Fed's rear end. But it's the right thing to do, protested Susan. Even if the country is split, getting food to the hungry is a good thing. And, like Malcolm said, if New Hampshire stays strong, the federal types will be kept busy. Bah! Coalition states can get by just fine without any of you East Coast types. Used to be, this was a great country, until they broke it. Little by little, they widened the cracks. Half the country was hard-working, decent people. The other half were sheep. They were too lazy to see the socialist lie they'd bought into only made them slaves. Before this outage happened, there's already two Americas pretending to be one country. Charon's angry stare melted into something more akin to sorrow. His gaze drifted into the distance. 
like going through the motions of being married, but... The change in Charon caught Susan off guard. Had his wife left him after many years of an empty marriage? Was that why he was always so gruff and irritable? Charon's angry expression returned. His gaze locked back onto her eyes. This crisis didn't split the country. It was already split. Makers and the takers, the workers and the slackers, pansies who demand free stuff and thought they were entitled to their own president. Well, they'll find out what a country made up of slackers can do. Starve. The feds have dealt themselves a very poor hand. Deciding to hunker down with their Soviet-style cantons, hoping to ride out this mess from their FEMA storage, it'll run out. Then what'll they do? The coalition is rebuilding, improvising. Farming programs are in the works for spring planting. Our people work harder because they're free. Truth be told, Princess, I don't think the coalition needs your New Hampshire, one way or the other. Humph, well, I think you're wrong, Susan said. People taking a stand can inspire others to do the same. Maybe your free coalition people needed a cause to work for, besides just themselves. Work to keep other people free, too. Did you think of that? Charon grumbled. Too much talking. The conversation didn't restart. A few miles of walking along the leaf-covered ghost of a fire trail, they passed a pile of discarded shingles. Not far from that, a pile of broken fluorescent bulbs, a broken toilet, and mangled window frames. Looks like someone's private dump, Charon said. It was not much for conversation, but Susan was glad he said something. She felt relieved that the topic was not about her screwing up or another political rant. Ahead of them lay a jumble of old clapboard, framing lumber scraps and wood posts. Many had large rusty nails jutting out in different directions. Brush and saplings grew up through the mess. As they stepped carefully around the jagged boards, they could see a gravelly, well-worn fire trail. It curved away to the right. Charon studied the dirt road and the pile of boards. Looks like this was an uncontrolled dump. Might have lost his load. Ended up blocking off his own road. The dirt road was closer to what Susan remembered biking on. The improved similarity to her memories encouraged her. This looks familiar again, she said. It shouldn't be too far now. After another mile, Charon stopped with his hands on his hips. Looks like you are right, Princess. There's the dairy farm, our staging area. Cool. Susan's victory didn't feel quite as sweet as she imagined it would. Nonetheless, she was excited that she had succeeded. She found the trail between the highway and her bridge. Her mind began creating images of people in Cheshire happily unloading boxes of food from semi-trailers. She imagined Martin smiling. A cold wave of reality swept away her rosy images. The truck still had to get to the staging area, and they still had to get across the bridge. There was precious little she could do to assure either one. Better let them know we've arrived, Sharon said. They're not expecting us. He moved into the brush near the highway. He knelt behind a large maple and flashed his flashlight toward a window in the barn. A small blue ribbon fluttered near the window header. 
Charon hung a blue rag on a tree trunk. After a long wait, Susan noticed a green light within the window. She was off-angle from where Charon knelt, but she thought she caught a glimpse of a green crescent. It flashed three times. A man emerged from around the corner of the barn with arms stretched wide. Charon crossed the highway and engaged in a loose four-handed handshake. "'Does this mean you found the road?' the man asked. "'Well, actually, Princess here found the road.' Susan was taken by surprise at being given credit for the success. She smiled and shrugged. Uh, well then, uh, excellent work, um, Princess. Susan's my real name, she extended her hand to be shaken. He likes nicknames. He calls me Princess. I call him Darth Vader. She had never actually called him that, but the thought occurred to her at the moment. It felt like thin ice, but also a satisfying little poke at his gruffness. The man snorted, then laughed heartily. Charon was clearly not amused. Charon's stoic frown made the man laugh even harder. We'd better get inside, Charon said flatly. The man choked down his laugh long enough to say, Yes, my lord. He then resumed laughing at his impersonation as he walked around the barn. Charon shook his head and sighed. Susan figured the laughing man was someone important enough that Charon couldn't yell at him. Inside the dark barn, Susan could see several men working around the outer walls. The concrete floor had been swept clean, but the interior still smelled of cows. The man recovered from his mirth. Radio reports are that the first trucks are in position at the last staging areas. Lost two to mechanical troubles. One of them, Charlie Five, broke down outside of Elmira. We won't miss that corn, but Charlie Five had my second forklift. You know how impossible this would be with just one forklift? The guys found an abandoned one in a warehouse south of here, but someone had taken the propane tank. We had to jerry-rig a different one. Looks like a dog's breakfast, but it works. So you're ready for them? asked Charon. I think so. Some will make their run tonight. Could be a half dozen, maybe more. Both tankers are on schedule. We'll break down the loads and set up for refueling. Leadership figures it'll take three days or so to get all the trucks in here before we can make the final run over the bridge. Speaking of that bridge, is it going to be ready? Don't know, said Charon. They got a lot of work to do. If the first truck breaks the bridge and falls into the river... Charon turned to level a stare at Susan. Then this whole exercise will have been a huge waste of men, time, and material. Susan swallowed hard. Justine simply had to get that bridge up to the task. She found her road. The trucks were coming. She felt helpless to solve the bridge problem. Other than providing physical labor lifting beams, uh, what more could she contribute? We'd better mark the trail and get back to camp, Charon said. What do you have? Ah, over here. The man motioned with his arm and pulled a cardboard box out from under a workbench. Inside were six cans of spray paint. I.R. Reflective Paint. He held out one of the cans and shook it until the little ball inside rattled. The can had a generic white label. It looks like primer gray in daylight, the man said, but it's got I.R. Reflective Pigments. Glows like white paint in I.R. light. The drivers will be using night vision goggles. 
We're set up to rig IR headlights to them when they get here. He pointed to his shelf full of white boxes. Excellent. Charon tucked the box of spray cans under his arm. There's a debris pile up on the hill about a half a mile. That's where the road veers right. Better detail a couple of men to clear that crap out of the way. Let's get started, princess. Susan began to fume for a moment, but the man interrupted her fume with a wink. Yes, my lord Vader, quipped the man in a falsetto voice. He began laughing again. Susan tried not to smile, but it was difficult. The other man was clearly relishing a chance to needle Charon. Perhaps Charon was prickly with everyone, and not just her. That thought gave her some comfort and made it harder not to smile. The walk back to camp took longer. They stopped every ten yards or so to spray a broad stripe on the tree trunks, or saplings, on both sides of the old logging trail. They cleared out the fallen branches that they could move. The larger deadfall would require a team from camp to clear. The sun was getting low over the hills behind them. They worked faster. The brush that had hidden the fork in the road was cut down to stubble. The fallen tree rested alongside the road. We have to pick up the pace, Charon said. Twilight's coming fast. Not sure we can get back to camp before the drones. They jogged as best they could through the woods. When they crossed the country road, Susan heard the faint sound of bees. Listen, she said, out of breath. We'll never get across the bridge in time, said Charon. Hide in the furniture van? Susan pointed to the camouflage netting through the trees. If it's not locked, come on. The two of them ran at a full sprint. The sound of bees grew louder. Charon rattled the back door handle. Locked! The driver door is open, Susan announced. She climbed in and slid over to the passenger side. Charon jumped in and slammed the door. Don't touch the glass or any outside walls, Charon whispered. IR can't see through glass, but it can see transferred heat. The buzz grew louder and overhead. Is that it? She started to point. Don't move, just in case, said Charon. But yes, that's it. Through the van's dirty windshield and openings in the camo netting, they could see a small blinking red light float overhead. The buzz from the six little propellers began to fade as the red light moved steadily eastward over the river. Do you think it saw us getting in? Susan asked. It's not acting like it did. I'd expect it to circle and confirm. It didn't even slow down. Does this mean we have ten minutes to get across the bridge and underground? Ten minutes or less. Come on. It was easier to run without the rag booties. The cold wind made Susan's eyes water. Dry leaves swirled behind them as they ran across the bridge. There would be nowhere to hide if the drone came back early. They paused for a moment in the brush at the eastern end of the bridge listening, catching their breath. There was no buzzing sound. They ran across the river road, up the hill, and between the silhouettes of cabins. So far, so good. Even Charon was winded from the run. Ah, last leg. They ran across the open space to the pump house. While Charon fiddled with the hasp, Susan heard the sound of bees. It's coming back, she whispered. Hurry up! She felt odd telling him to hurry but there was no time to relish the moment. Once inside, they stood clear of the walls and listened. The buzz was faint and steady. It finally receded. 
Charon blew out a breath of relief. Susan matched it. Charon drew his big knife and laid the blade across two nail heads in one of the studs. A small spark flashed behind his knife blade. Don't want them shooting us as intruders, he said. A dim green light flickered on the opposite corner. We're clear. You first, he pushed the crate off of the trapdoor. The Charon characters spoke of two Americas. When I was writing Book Two, specifically, I imagined that the crisis exacerbated a split government to the point of dysfunction. This, as a plot device, helped remove the notion that everyone would be okay in a few weeks or months, because an organized and coordinated government would ride in to the rescue. On top of that, I imagined that the deep state half of the government would get harsh and authoritarian if their peasants didn't fall obediently in line. Hence the siege of New Hampshire. As I'd mentioned in earlier notes, COVID proved me righter than I wanted to be, with harsh penalties for anyone who failed to obey. A vindictive government just might embargo a whole state. The idea of Operation Longbow, built upon the notion that an outage exposed a pre-existing split in the country, even three presidents ago, everyone seemed accepting of there being red states and blue states, as though they were separate and almost enemies. When I was writing Book 4, it was the winter of 2016, spring of 2017. I was somewhat taken aback by the loud and impassioned chants of, Not my president. Each side felt entitled to their own president. That red-blue split seemed palpable. In the years since writing Book 4, I've read articles about there being two Americas. The red-blue split seems to grow rather than heal. I see hints of similar splits in other nations, where a tradition of freedom runs up against the fashionably new authoritarians. I shake my head at the thought, but maybe I wasn't creating such a fiction after all. Ah, but not to end on a downer note. Go and enjoy a beverage of your choice. My choice is coffee usually a medium roast with just a hint of cream. Of course, virtual coffees are good, too. Wasn't that a smooth segue? Consider buying me a virtual coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash mickroland, all one word. I do appreciate support from my listeners. Thanks for listening.